Turn with me to Acts chapter 12. The book of Acts chapter 12. Uh, Acts comes right after the Gospels, so it's, yeah, maybe, I don't know, 60, 70% of the way through your Bible, right after the Gospel of John. And we're going to be working through the whole chapter this morning of Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself. And put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was sleeping and seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and they went along, or they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now... When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service 
bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use uh, this story that you have revealed and recorded for our growth and for our help, that you'd use this story for us to know you more, to understand you, to love you, to understand your power, your majesty, how great you are, how much we can trust you, how we do not need to fear. Holy Spirit, only you can grant us eyes of faith. Only you can illuminate our hearts to the very words that you have inspired. And so we ask that you do that even this morning, we pray, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. I wonder if you've ever considered uh, the kind of great burden a judge has to carry. Uh, A judge in a civil court, a high court, superior court, supreme court, whatever, right? Have you ever thought about how much of a burden it would be to be a judge? I mean, you are making decisions over people's life with all of the power of the state behind you that will likely impact them for the rest of their days. That's a lot on the line. Whether you say guilty or innocent might mean 20 years in a federal prison with some of the darkest human beings around and one of the worst cultures you could ever swim in for decades, being at threat of losing your life and many other horrendous things happening to you in prison and being shaped by those people away from your family, away from your kids for decades. That's a pretty important decision. And they have to do it all the time. It's a big burden to carry. They better be right when they make their choice. Huh? How much more if they have power of the death penalty uh, in a state where they have to actually say life or death? That's even worse than multiple decades in a penitentiary, right? Big, weighty responsibility. Well, in the ancient Near East and in the Roman kind of period, often governors, kings, emperors had the power of a judge for life or for death. You guys remember Gladiator, right? This one, this one, that's the power that they wielded. But sometimes you get kings who are not always very just, not always making the right choice unintentionally or intentionally. Uh, There's a pretty famous group of three individuals right after Julius Caesar, as Rome is shaping from a republic into an empire. Caesar, as you know, in the Ides of March, stabbed tons and tons of times by the Senate, and now there's a power vacuum. Civil war erupts, and people are vying for power. Who's going to gain control over Rome? Three men start to really become the center of attention. A guy named Mark Anthony, a guy named Lepidus, and a guy named Octavius Julius Caesar, later called Augustus. These three men gather together, and they start something called proscriptions, wielding all the power of the state for the protection of the state. And these proscriptions were a list of names of people they would write out. And if you got on the list of names, you would either lose all of your property or you would be executed immediately. And the list was really, really long. And these three guys got to write down the names. Who gets to stay? Who gets to go? Who gets thumbs up? Who gets thumbs down? And as people look back in history, they start to notice, wow, a lot of the people... Oh, here's another thing. 
If you were on the prescription list, if you got executed, the state would take all of your assets. And it just so happened to be the case that all the people they didn't like before they got in power were on the list. It just so happened to be the case that all the people that had most of the wealth were on the list. Very, very interesting. Power over life and death isn't always wielded justly. It's often used for manipulation and one's own personal ends. I'm bringing these things up because today we're looking at somebody who has power over life or death. His name's Herod Agrippa, and the story is going to largely revolve around him from beginning to the end. But here's the message this morning. Fear not. God has ultimate power over your life and your death. Fear not. God, no one else, God has ultimate power over your life and your death. So number one, we're going to look at power over your life. Number two, power over your death. Pretty simple. Uh, We've been moving through Acts for a while now. Uh, This is a section where we kind of bounce back from Paul to Peter to Paul to Peter to Paul to Peter. And today we're going to land on a Peter story. But Paul is that great persecutor of the church, rescued, redeemed, called by Jesus on the road to Damascus. But again, he receives that mixed reception. The Jews are trying to kill him after he becomes a Christian because they hate hate him for his betrayal so much. The Christians are cautious because they don't know if he's going to really be an undercover guy trying to rip them all out of their house again. And then later on, we see Peter being used by the Lord, helping the helpless, healing people that no one would ever know of. And then again, later on, seeing God is calling also not just the Jews to faith in Christ, but also the Gentiles. That in one person, Christ, all peoples, Jew or not, are saved and rescued. And we also saw last week, as we went to the revival in Antioch, that the gospel creates life from nothing. As we looked at the rebirth, the growth, the test, all those things happening, and now we find ourselves again back with Peter today. So point number one, fear not. God has power over your life. God has power over your life. Uh, Persecution has been going on for some time in Acts now. Jews have hated Jesus all along. Uh, The Jews have hated the Christians all along. But a big change is happening here today. The Jews are everywhere, and that's a problem in the empire. Uh, It's not that the Gospels or Acts is anti-Semitic at all. They're trying to reach the Jews, but the Jews hate the Christians. But even worse today, now it's the state that's getting involved. Now it's Rome that's trying to kill Christians. So you've got Jews all over trying to hurt you, and now you have the state everywhere you turn trying to harm you. That's a big change in the storyline. Uh, the man in particular we zoom in on today, his name's Herod Agrippa I. Uh, he's often referred to as one of the many Herods in the Bible, but in history he's usually called Agrippa. He was actually the grandson of Herod the Great. We talked about him during Christmas, right? The guy that executed infanticide, all the babies in Bethlehem because he wanted to protect his kingship. He didn't like hearing that this king of the Jews was born in Bethlehem, that incredibly murderous, violent human being. That's his grandfather. But you remember, maybe, that Herod, the granddad, was so violent that he actually killed his own sons because they were plotting against him. Well, one of those boys that got killed by dad had a son before he died, and his name is Herod Agrippa. That's the man we're looking at today. Uh, Born into a family that converted to Judaism, actually really liked by the Jews, 
The Jews really appreciated Herod Agrippa. Uh, he came from the Maccabean family, pretty well-known revolutionary family from about 100 years before this period. And he took personal risks to his own political career to protect the Jews and their piety. So the Jews are like, yeah, Herod Agrippa, that's great. You can be the king. We love you. We like you. And Herod uh, seems to really be cozying up to the more nationalist, uh, conservative, pharisaical Jews, the ones in particular who really, really hate Jesus. He's a pretty violent dude. Uh, historically, we know that he executed 1,400 people at once publicly. Not the most merciful ruler. And so killing a couple Christians is really no big deal to this guy. And that's where he starts things off. Uh, verses 1 and 2. About the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. If you can think of back to the Gospels, the story of the twelve disciples, uh, there was two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. At one time, ironically, they come up, they, <laughs> they convinced their mom, as crazy as this sounds, to go to Jesus to say, hey Jesus, can you make sure when you become king over everything that my son John and my son James will be at your right and your left hand. And Jesus says to mom, hey, <laughs> that's not for me to give. That's for the father to give. But here I'll tell you this. Your boys will suffer more than they could ever know because that's what's required to be at my right and left hand. But whether or not they're going to get that, I can't tell you. But they will suffer greatly. And we see James finally encountering that suffering, executed by the sword, at the hands of Rome publicly. It finally took place. What's interesting here, though, is Herod doesn't let the Jews stone James. The Jews want to, they, they love throwing heavy rocks to kill people, that's for sure. But he doesn't let them do that. He kills James with the sword of the state in particular to signal to society that Christians are a threat to the Roman Empire. They're not just a bunch of religious sect people they are a threat to our very power and our influence over the world. They need to be killed by us. And if you're a Christian, how are you feeling right now? You got Jews all over trying to hurt you. And now you have Romans all over also trying to hurt you. There would be deep, deep fear. A lot of people very scared. Losing your house, losing your family, Losing your life, uh, it's a pretty, pretty heavy cost to pay. A lot of people were afraid. Herod moves on from James, though. He had bigger fish to fry. Uh, verses 3 through 4. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. We start with a lower-scale disciple, James. And now we're moving on to a more significant leader. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, later on is going to really become the central leader of the church in Jerusalem. But right now, Peter is the premier figure of Christianity in the Jerusalem church. He's been the one preaching to, engaging with the leaders of the Jews more than anybody else. Peter is kind of enemy of the Jews, number one. And so what Herod's doing, what Agrippa's doing here, is he's doing something that people call bullets before cannonballs. 
If you have a new idea and you think it's going to be really helpful, really convinced of it, it's often wise to test things, right? And so Agrippa's pretty convinced. I've got a lot of influence with the Jews. I can get more of them on my side. I can get more power. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start killing some Christians. And I'm going to see how that goes. And if it works and things go well and there's not revolt, I'm going to start ramping it up. So we'll test things with James. If it doesn't go too well and it gets rejected, then no problem. It's just James. I'll, I'll shirk it off, water off the back, you know, no big deal. If I start with Peter and it's a problem, that's the head honcho and that's going to be an issue. But it goes well with James. It pleases the Jews. So Peter is on deck. He's up next for execution. He sees he finally has his chance. Uh, verses 5 through 6. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made of God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. He thinks, if I can kill and execute Peter publicly, I will officially win the Jews over. So I'm going to take great, great pains to make sure this guy doesn't escape. I'm going to have him in prison tonight. I'm going to bring him out for the people tomorrow, and things are going to go really, really well. Herod's sitting in his bed that night, head on the pillow, dreaming of the greater power he's going to have because it's a done deal. Peter is in chains. Herod has appointed four sentries of four guards each. How this worked was each of the groups of four soldiers would have a six-hour shift to be ultra-focused on one thing. Do not let Peter escape. And during those six-hour shifts, two soldiers would be chained to Peter. One on his right arm, chained to a soldier. One on his left arm, chained to a soldier. And the other two would be watching the doors of the prison. I mean, it's like you can't, you, there's nothing Peter can do. It's a done deal in Herod's eyes. But the church, as powerful as Agrippa is, what do they do? They petition, they plead with, they make requests of the greater king who has more power. And they say, Lord, we don't want to lose Peter. We need Peter. Save Peter. Rescue Peter. You can do miraculous things. You raise the dead. You heal the lame. You give sight to the blind. Please save Peter. And that's what we see take place. Jailbreak. Uh, verses 7 and 11. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. The chains fell off his hands. Verse 11. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, i.e., my execution. God breaks him out, sends the angel of the Lord to rescue him. The one who has real power exercises that to preserve and protect the life of Peter. God loves to get the glory. You see this all the time, right? God loves to bring you to circumstances where you have nowhere to turn, nowhere to go, everyone has failed, you are weak and insufficient, and all you can look to is up and pray. And that's what's happening here. Peter was done. I mean, he was toast. But God rescues him from the chains so that God gets all of the glory at the end of the story. Peter then realizes it's not a vision. Walking on the streets, he's like, no way, I'm, 
I'm actually awake. This is all real. And he starts rushing to a woman's house named Mary. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark. Mary is his mom. That's where Peter runs to. There seems to be a group of the church meeting there, praying for him, likely, since his execution is tomorrow. And he gets there, and it's a pretty comical story. Uh, I don't know if you caught it when I was reading. It's kind of funny. Luke is showing the irony of what's taking place here. He gets to the, gets to the gate. Well, I'll say this. The angel and Peter, as he's coming out of the jail, it says the gate literally just like swings open for them almost supernaturally. Things just like God opens the gates for them to get in totally easy and free. When he finally gets to the house to seek refuge, what is he doing? He's like, hey, let me in, let me in. And somebody runs to the door, a little slave girl named Rhoda, and she recognizes you. They're like, who's this guy in the middle of the night? And she recognizes it's Peter's voice. She knows him that well. And instead of opening the gate, what does she do? She gets so giddy and so full of excitement that she rushes back to tell everybody, hey, Peter's here, Peter's here, Peter's at the gate. And they're like, what are they, how do they respond? Well, we're praying for Peter to be released right now. We're praying that God would miraculously rescue Peter, but you're crazy. That can't be Peter. <laughs> Think of that. We are asking God to do the impossible, but when God has now done the impossible, and he's literally knocking on the door, exposed, vulnerable. People are going to be searching for him on the streets. He's out there knocking, like, let me in. We're like, nah, God can't actually have answered our prayer. You're insane. You're just hearing his angel. He's not really there. Uh, verses 14 through 15. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that, she, that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they started to say it was his angel. I'm really encouraged by this. Here's why. When you read the book of Acts, you start to kind of think that the Christians in these stories are like super Christians. Like, man, I really wish I could be like that. You know, I really wish I would be willing to be killed for my faith. I really wish I had the guts and the grit and the courage to preach Christ to somebody who literally wants to murder me. You see these things and you get inspired, but you also get a little intimidated. Like, Lord, I don't know if I could do that kind of thing. I don't think I could do anything like that on my own. And these are moments of reminders that that's true. And neither could they on their own. They are a church who was faithful, but sometimes lacked faith. A church who asked big things of God, but sometimes weren't so quick to believe he had actually done them. A church a lot like us. Now, the book of James says, Elijah, though God worked miracles and amazing, powerful things through him, he was just a normal dude at the end of the day. God just used him. As much as it looks like he's a special super saint, he's a normal human being just like you and I. Same thing with the church. They prayed their socks off, but when God finally did the miraculous, they thought, nah, not really. Uh, but may we, in faith, remember it's God who has all the power. God who has control over life and death. Read a few verses for you real quick in light of that. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God besides me. I kill. I make alive. I wound. I heal. 
There is none that can deliver out of my hand. First uh, Samuel 2.6, the song of Hannah. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. In Proverbs 21, 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Can you see what Scripture is saying? God and God alone has power over life and death. I don't care how much power Agrippa has, how much wisdom and counselors and cabinet he has, at the end of the day, God is the one who finally says, thumbs up or thumbs down. It's not the state, it's not the Jews, it's no one but God and God alone. And so I ask you today, friends, uh, where do you go when you get afraid? When you think someone or something is going to harm you or the people or the things that you love, happens all the time, where do you go? Do you turn to yourself? Do you run to another person? Where does your heart trust in? Only God can stop the thing you are fearful of. And just like the church, only God should be the one ultimately that you rest in for your rescue. God and God alone. You may have a boss that hates you, wants to fire you because you won't shut up about this whole Jesus thing. Or you have a coworker who wants to get your boss to fire you because you work so hard and you're being so faithful and they're jealous and they're threatened and you're going to get promoted and they may not and they can't let that happen so you have to go down because it's dog eat dog. You may have people who hate you for no good reason, want to harm and tarnish your reputation, backbite you so that you get ostracized and excluded. Only God has the power to rescue. Only God has the power to preserve. Uh, this truth, we all have heard it before, but it really does change the way that you think about these problems. Because one, you see clearly, God knows. It's crystal clear. He is very, very well aware of the issues you're facing. Uh, number two, you can have courage. Even if you're chained to a soldier on both sides of you, that whatever happens, whatever God allows and ordains to take place, I can be full of faith and not fear, bold and courageous to represent Christ in all that I do, knowing that he is good, even if I do lose my life tomorrow. But he may also rescue me. You think about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that, that story of the three Jews who would not bow the knee to the big statue in Babylon? And they say, the Lord God, he will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow the knee because they trust that he is good and he knows what he's doing. And third, though, and this is probably one of the more significant things that changes. If people are committing evil against you and they hate you and it's unjust, a lot of us want to fight fire with fire. We want to go blow for blow. We want to get back and get their or they need to get their comeuppance on. But Scripture says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
It is not up to you to get justice for the wrongs done to you. That's up to somebody who knows way more, has way more resources, and is way more just and wise. It's up to God. God will bring justice for wrongs done to you. You do not have to be the avenger of blood, in particular of your own blood. God will repay. He has power over life and over death. So that's point number one. Fear not, God has power over life. Uh, Point number two, God has power over death. I love, really love stories. I love movies. Uh, In particular, when there's that big kind of ironic plot twist you just did not see coming. And you're like, no way. (laughs) Seriously? Those are some of my favorite moments in stories. Especially the ironic reversals. The kind of poetic justice stuff is really rich. There's just this sort of deep satisfaction where the bad guy who dug the pit for the good guy to fall into, he trips and falls into it to himself, right? That's some of my favorite stuff. Uh, The Book of Esther, if any of you have read that, is just full of that stuff. The Book of Esther is a story of the Jews in the Persian Empire. And there's this young girl who has an uncle who takes care of her. His name's Mordecai. It's a young girl named Esther. She's a Jew. She becomes a wife of the emperor. But her uncle is really, really hated by the kind of emperor's number two, number three guy named Haman. Haman hates Mordecai because he hates Jews. He just really hates Jews. And what he does is he tries to figure out ways where he can get Mordecai killed. So he builds like an 80-foot gallow to hang him from publicly in the capital city of Susa. And he can't wait to see Mordecai's dangling little body at the top of that noose. But through the story, it comes to be the case that to try to kill Mordecai, in addition, he wants to kill all Jews. But he foolishly doesn't realize Esther, the emperor's wife, is a Jew. And so she finally gets husband, the king, and Haman to sit down at dinner. And she finally comes out and says, he wants to kill me and every single one of my people. And the king realizes how unjust and how evil and how wicked this guy is. And he says, okay, this guy needs to die. Oh, I just noticed there's this 80-foot gallow in the middle of the city court or the city city square. That's where Haman needs to hang and dangle. Justice, poetic, ironic reversal of justice. That's something kind of what we see in the story today. Herod Agrippa, wielding his power trying to flex and exert authority on the nations around him, is angry at two kind of side-by-side kingdoms named Tyre and Sidon. And what he wants to do is he wants to make them pay for the wrongs that they did to him. We don't know exactly what it was. And so because he controls their food supply, he calls a little conference in the seaport town of Caesarea, and he makes them give him what he wants. He dons his royal robes. We learn from other uh, sources like Josephus. It's a very well-known situation. Blue, silver, sitting in the sun, sits down to give his big king of the Jews speech. And as he's giving the speech, the people of Tyre and Sidon want to pacify him. They want to flatter him. They want him to be nice. Play nice, king. We're real people too. And so they start saying things like, Oh, the voice of a god and not a man. And Agrippa eats it up. Eats it up. What's interesting is Agrippa is a governor of the Roman Empire. One of the reasons he got into power is because he was really close friends with 
Claudius when he was emperor and Caligula when they were emperor. And as a governor and a king of a small realm, rather than emperor of the whole empire, you're not supposed to let people call you a god. You're supposed to kind of redirect that back to the emperor of Rome. You're not supposed to just take that and be like, yeah, I am a god. You're right. You're supposed to say, no, that's the emperor. I'm just a servant. But what does Agrippa do here? He lets them keep going. He says, "Uh uh-huh, bring it on. Something happens to him in light of that. Uh, Verses 21 through 22. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten in worms, and he breathed his last. He says, I am a God. I am that great. I am that glorious. And God, who is jealous in a good sense, not a bad sense, for his own glory, because there's nothing more just than God and God alone to receive all the glory, sends an angel, but not to rescue him from prison like he did with Peter, but he sends an angel to strike him down and kill him. Uh, This situation is actually very well known in history. Uh, Josephus records it, lots of details, things to really corroborate with what Luke is telling us. And we find out the eaten by worms is his stomach was literally eaten from the inside out by worms until he died of his own organs a week later, just falling apart inside of him. He really does breathe his last. What I want you to see is there's some irony in the story. Agrippa wants to kill Peter so that he can get glory, so that he can have more power. He uses his power wrongly to get more power. He does something very inglorious to get more glory. And at the height of his glory, shining robes, you are a god, the sun, all these things, is when God kills him for God's glory, not for his own. The man who tried to execute Peter is himself executed by the greater king, the king of kings. As Peter stands up and has to put on his prison clothes to escape before he dies, this one puts on his royal robe and sits down right before he dies. It's very, very interesting. Lots of irony in this story. May have even been the same angel. The one who released Peter may have been the one who killed Agrippa. But here's what we see. As Agrippa is trying to spread his kingdom... God prevents that and instead spreads his own kingdom. Verse 24, right after he dies, but the word of God increased and multiplied. God exercises power over life to preserve Peter and over death, even to kill Herod Agrippa. Uh, For a lot of us, we hear stories of God saving people, helping people, protecting people. That's like, yeah, amen, awesome, right? We even have our Coworkers, neighbors, whatever, who are agnostic, atheists, they don't mind if you pray for them, right? Like, if they're sick and they have cancer and you're like, hey, I'm praying for you, they're not like, no, no, stop that. Like, we don't, <laughs> that whole God intervening and, like, rescuing people's stuff, I don't want that. Like, don't pray for me. That may happen sometimes, but that's pretty rare. But when we think of God having power over death, that's where a lot of people start to get a little more jittery. That seems so cruel. How could a God of love ever put anybody to death? How does that ever come together? 
That's a, that's a good question to think through, right? But here's the thing. God is a king. Herod was a king. But Herod was supposed to be just, wasn't he? And to be just means you uphold what is good and right, and you put down what is evil and wicked. Goodness, excuse me, justice is an application of goodness to the things that are not right. Goodness responds to evil in justice to put it down. And would you want God to be an unjust king? It's an interesting question to think about. Would you want God to be so kind of squishy, loving, gentle that he was powerless against evil? That he had no say in stopping or thwarting evil? You could have somebody that's really nice, really caring, really gentle, but man, when there's somebody stronger and more wicked than them, they just get walked all over and they can't help you. Sorry, I'm the, I'm the nice guy. I'm not the stop the bad guys guy. That's not the kind of God you want. It may sound nice at first until the bad guys get control. He is a good king and he thwarts injustice. And it's important to see here that he had lots of grace on Agrippa. He gave Agrippa lots and lots of time to come to know him. But the window of grace for everybody will end, won't it? For some of us, we finally get no more grace and have to stand before God at the final judgment. And there's no more chances, no more second shots. That's it. You will be judged according to your works. And if you don't meet the standard of perfection, you're separated from the God of holiness. Um, but sometimes, in special circumstances in the Bible, the window of grace has ended very specifically like this. Grace, 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 no more. And God takes him. But remember, he has had grace the whole time because Herod has been rejecting the one who deserves all the glory. God, God should be magnified by Herod. And even though Herod was God's enemy, God still gave him gifts and made him a king and gave him the shot to love and care for his people. But Herod still rejected him, took the glory for himself. You might be thinking, though, well, okay, this is a very powerful God the Bible talks about. How can I trust him? You're saying he's just? You're saying he's powerful? Okay, but how do I know he's good and will love me if he kills guys like Agrippa? How can I trust him? I think that's a legitimate question. Think, but think about how he has wielded this power over life and death. I'm going to read for you a verse uh, from Acts, just a few chapters before, more than a few. Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is the sermon of Peter at Pentecost. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible to be held by it. God has ultimate power over life and death, and we see that no better than in any human being than in his own son. How can you trust that God will use that power to help and serve and build you? Look at how he used it for you already. He sends his son, plans for, ordains, and wills that his son would die and not be spared. 
still the hands of lawless men who are responsible for killing and murdering Jesus, but it is God who willed in his ultimate power that that would take place for you so that you would not have to be the one to suffer condemnation, execution, separation from God, so that you might have eternal life. He suffers eternal death. That's how he uses his power. On himself to suffer sacrifice for your good. If you ever think, God, how can I trust you? How do I know you love me? Just look at the cross. It has happened, it is finished, it is fixed, you cannot change it. No matter what takes place around you, you can always look back and say, I know you love me because of what you've done already for me. He uses his ultimate power for your ultimate good. And so do not fear, as we've already said. You don't need to be afraid. It's a normal thing to have fear cast into you. You know, if you stand next to a huge cliff and somebody pretends to push you, (laughs) is it sinful for your heart rate to jump and your adrenaline to rush because you think you're about to fall hundreds of feet? No, that's not sinful. But if you keep living in it, swimming in it, inviting it in, feeding it, that's where you start to get in the realm of a problem. And God says, fear not. I have the power to rescue. I have the power to redeem. You can trust in me because I will protect you. Sickness, car crash, potential violence, God has the ultimate power, and you can trust him. Uh, Two two quick things before we wrap up. Fact is, you are going to die. It's not the best, most uplifting way to end a sermon, Um, but it's true. Everybody in this room, unless Jesus returns, will die. We've had a lot of funerals lately. Death is on my mind a lot. I know it's on your mind probably. All of us are going to die, but know this. You will not die until it's the very second and moment that God wills for you to pass from this life to the next. And the moment that you finally cross that dark river, there is nothing but glory and joy and life on the other side. But that will not happen until the very moment that God chooses. Know that. It is all according to his plan. And the reason you haven't left yet, if you're a Christian, it's because he still has more things for you to do. Kids to love, a spouse to take care of, friends to be a friend to, family to serve, people to reach. He still has more work for you to do until you get that great and final rest, seeing him face to face. If you're like me and you think about death, the thing you often think about most is about the people you leave behind. Who will guide and take care of and love my children? Who, what will happen to my wife? How will she be provided for? Who are going to train up these little human beings who need a loving father? But know this, he's going to take care of them too. There are more his kids, his spouse, his people than they are your people. And there is nobody better that you can entrust them to than God. Amen? Fear not, God has ultimate power over life and death. And God says, I am the just judge. I am the king of kings. I say, live or die. Let's pray.
Uh, your power, Lord, is truly infinite, and we just have no concept of really how great you are. Uh, we try to scratch the surface. We try to think about you in the midst of our busyness and the many things in life, but we really have no understanding of how deep your love is, how great your power is. Uh, but we ask, Lord, that even today we would just get a little bit closer to understanding you. You have power over death and life, and you love your people. Uh, may we pray continuously that we would be useful in your hands. May we use every day that you've given us in this life until you take us home. And Lord, may we fear not because you are with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.